I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Kagan and Sotomayor's recent speeches, the court's new grants and denials, and we'll interview Supreme Court lawyer Pratik Shah. So the justices are not hearing arguments or having a conference this week, so we'll talk a little bit about SCOTUS in the news. So Tiffany, did you hear President Trump thinks he may get to nominate three more justices? Yes, um, I heard that. I think he said he will get to replace Kennedy, Ginsburg, and Sotomayor. Yeah, so Axios is reporting that sources say Trump believes, in addition to replacing Anthony Kennedy, who is widely believed to be considering retiring uh, in the near future, apparently Trump also thinks he's going to replace the notorious RBG and Sotomayor, citing health reasons for both of them. Sotomayor, of course, uh, has lived with type 1 diabetes since she was a child, and and Trump referenced that, allegedly. Uh, And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he also pointed out something along the lines of she weighs 60 pounds. So probably because she works out all the time. She does. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But uh, I think it's a little bit of wishful wishful thinking if if Trump really believes he's going to get three more uh, nominees. But I guess we will see. Yeah, that's unlikely to happen. But if he does get another appointment, we have a list prepared. We do. President Trump, please call us. We have many ideas. So the court is also it's uh, using a new transcript service this this term called the Heritage Reporting Corporation. This has no affiliation with the Heritage Foundation. Just want to point that out. Uh, and it's getting flack from SCOTUS watchers. Uh, for one, it's slower to release transcripts the day of arguments. People who can't make it over to the court to watch the argument live eagerly await the transcripts to be released, which used to be available shortly after lunch on argument days. Now they're taking a little bit longer. There have also been some transcription errors. Uh, one was all over Twitter last week where the transcript service actually called Justice Alito Justice Solito, which sounds like a mashup of Sotomayor and Alito, which I think would be a pretty terrifying judge. Um, So uh, on Twitter, there have been some really funny memes, uh, which we'll we'll tweet out from from our SCOTUS 101 handle, uh, suggesting that, you know, maybe this is bizarro Justice Alito like bizarro Superman um, or evil Justice Alito from another realm. So... uh, that's that's the latest with the transcript service. I've also noticed that the court has been slower to post their orders on Monday mornings after conferences. Maybe it's because of that flashy new website. Yeah, I don't know what's what's going on. But appellate Twitter is a fire with all of these concerns. Um, so Justices Kagan and Sotomayor are both hitting the speaking circuit this week. Justice Kagan spoke to students at the Chicago Kent College of Law. Um, she talked about after Justice Scalia died, the justices had to work harder to compromise, um, and she hopes that will continue. She also pointed out that the court decides more than 50 percent of cases unanimously um, and that, you know, she hopes that continues. She did mention uh, the dynamic of the court um, in respect to the fact that her and Justice Gorsuch have now a constant running joke about being the junior justice who has to get uh, get the door. And she says she still <laughs> flinches when when someone knocks at the door. But it's just Gorsuch's uh, duty now. Yeah, I read somewhere that Kagan said when she was the junior justice uh, and she had to answer the door during conference, um, she injured her foot at some point, And so she had a, a boot and she expected that maybe somebody else would help her out. <laughs> and there was a knock at the door and everyone just looked at Elena like, come on, answer the door. It's your job. So she yeah. had to hobble over. Well, you can't just go flouting tradition. That's you know, true. Hurt foot or not. Um, 
So in her speech, she also praised her former boss, Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American Supreme Court justice. Uh, She called him the greatest lawyer of the 20th century and said that no one did more to advance justice. And she also talked about um, some more of his little uh, little or known roles, including um, being the lawyer in Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, and there was a movie that came out. Uh, we've talked about it in the first season of the podcast. Uh, the movie's called Marshall, and it looks at uh, Justice Marshall's um, early career and some of the cases he was involved in. I haven't seen it yet, but maybe, Tiffany, either. we should go see it and then do, do a review for SCOTUS 101. <laughs> yes, I, that's a great idea. Um, and finally, Justice Kagan talked about um, how she didn't do so well in law school her first semester. So I think she gave the students a lot of hope because um, she obviously didn't let that get her down. She went then went on to become the dean of Harvard Law School, the solicitor general of the United States, and now sits on the Supreme Court. And I read somewhere, I think a, quite a while ago, that um, she may have gotten a C her first semester of law school. I have to confess, I got one C in law school, so... I guess I'm in good company if I'm along with Elena Kagan. Uh, so, so. <laughs> speaking to students at Queens College in New York, uh, Justice Sotomayor talked this week about the importance of a liberal arts education and how much she valued her degree. Uh, she also talked a little bit about her role as a justice. She's known for her somewhat fiery temperament, and she said that it's important for judges to be self-aware of their biases and emotions and counter them in an impartial way. And I have to say, I couldn't agree more with uh, Justice Sotomayor on that point, and that's not something you hear every day at the Heritage Foundation. So (laughs) one more thing before we get into the recent orders, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's personal trainer published a book and it's out this week. It's called The RBG Workout, How She Stays Strong and So Can You. It's by her longtime trainer, Brian uh, Bryant Johnson, who is an Army veteran and an employee of the D.C. District Court. He has a side business called BJ's Body Justice, where he trains Ruth Bader Ginsburg and, and some other judges as well. So he says, if you think Ginsburg is tough on the bench, she's tough as nails in the gym. (laughs) I bet she is. Uh, So the book promises a supremely good exercise program based on Ginsburg's strength training and stretching routine, which includes planks, push-ups, and squats. There's also a cartoon of Ginsburg on the cover of the book, but I would point out that she's not wearing her trademark jabot, which is the thing she wears around her neck. I wonder if she has like a workout jabot. I mean, she should. Yeah, well, she has her dissenting jabot that's very, uh, very elaborate. And then she has her majority majority opinion. I think she maybe she has a special one for the State of the Union. I feel like she's worn the same one to that uh, previously. She likes a lot of white lace ones, too. Yes. Yeah. So we we need to do some investigating uh, about, you know, whether she whether she has one for working out. I think it would only be appropriate. Uh, So, Tiffany, you want to tell us about the orders that came out of the court this week? Uh, yes. The, so the court granted four new cases this week, uh, bringing the total so far to 47. And they, they usually hear around 70 or 75 cases each year. So they still, still have a little ways to go to fill the rest of the docket. Um, but this week they granted cases including um, one about double jeopardy, one about suppression of evidence, one about antitrust, and one about whether an email service provider um, must make certain disclosures to the government, even when it s- stores certain materials abroad. Um, in other news, the court removed a second case from the argument calendar. So they had removed the Trump travel ban um, case, and they also removed a securities fraud case. Uh, the parties have allegedly settled and no longer need oral argument. So on the, the travel ban, I, I read that uh, the first district court has ruled on travel ban 3.0, 
uh, against the administration. So I think uh, before long, we may see it uh, reappear at the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, The court denied a couple cases we were hoping they would take, including an Establishment Clause challenge to a city's Ten Commandments display in New Mexico and a challenge to racial preferences in government contracting. So Justice Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit has uh, wrote extensively about the Establishment Clause, mostly about how uh, Establishment Clause standing doctrine is a mess. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see if the court takes um, eventually takes one of those those cases. So I think the most interesting thing out of the orders this week was something that Gorsuch wrote. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So the court also denied a case dealing with whether an administrative agency's interpretation of an ambiguous contractual term should receive uh, Chevron-style deference. Um, Justice Gorsuch uh, wrote a statement respecting the denial of cert, so he said it was he thought it was appropriate that they denied cert, um, but he pointed out that um, that was only because this case had a lot of fact-bound questions um, and it wasn't an appropriate vehicle. But the underlying issue um, about whether an agency should get deference um, on a um, on a con- interpreting a contract um, was surely worthy of consideration in a different case. Uh, Roberts and Alito joined him in that, so I'm sure um, a lot of people will take that as a call to um, bring another case along these lines. Definitely. Gorsuch, when he was on the appeals court, he wrote a concurring opinion to one of his own majority opinions, which is kind of an interesting, <laughs> uh, he had a lot to say in that case, uh, in, in a, a Chevron uh, case where he said that it might be time for the court to reconsider Chevron. That's the gutierrez uh, Brazuela v. Lynch case uh, that a lot of people were talking about during his confirmation hearing. So along with Gorsuch, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Alito and Thomas have all expressed uh, some sort of skepticism about one of the deference doctrines. So I, I think it it is likely to come up, one, one of them is likely to come up on review uh, in the not-so-distant future. Yeah, and there's also, I know there's a recent cert, uh, cert petition um, asking the court to overrule our deference. Yes, that was brought by our uh, former uh, one-time guest, Will Consovoy, uh, and his firm. So that hopefully the court will take a close look at that. Uh, excellent petition. We're pleased to have Pratik Shaw with us today. Pratik is a partner at Aiken Gump, where he's the co-head of the Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Group. He's argued 13 cases before the Supreme Court and previously served in the Solicitor General's office. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Pratik. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you worked for Elena Kagan and Donald Verrilli in the Solicitor General's office. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience working for them? And also, what's it like appearing before your former boss, who's now on the Supreme Court? Sure. Uh, It's a true honor to work with both of them. Um, Highlights of my career, I would say. Uh, Both exceptional leaders, both extremely effective, uh, but two pretty different personalities. Um, Justice Kagan is a force of nature. Um, She (laughs) likes things done a certain way, and she lets you know it. Uh, And she's not afraid to shake things up a bit, which is unusual in the SG's office, where folks are pretty low-key and things don't change very much. Uh, But I loved working for her. She's extremely sharp quick-witted, um, and one of the best editors and writers I've ever known. And now the rest of the world knows that uh, from her perch in the Supreme Court, where she writes uh, just beautiful and incisive opinions. Um, and appearing before her um, um, is actually a lot of fun. You know, She actually gives you a slight wink, uh, which goes <laughs> undetected, but it's comforting for advocates up there. Um, and, and Don Varelli, um, equally effective, um, but in a more understated way. 
Um, he has a commanding presence without asserting it. He's just respected by all for his judgment, his integrity. Um, you know, I don't think there's been an SG that's ever had a tenure like him. Big case after big case, the Affordable Care Act, affirmative action, gay marriage, and through it all, um, he had a steady hand under just extreme pressure. And I think we all forged a very deep, um, personal and strong connection going through those cases um, together. So which do you like better, being in private practice or government service? Uh, I'm going to cheat and say both. Um, (laughs) There's no better place for a young attorney uh, to learn the ropes on the biggest stage than in the Solicitor General's office, which is where I spent the bulk of my uh, government service. Um, You learn from the best appellate advocates on the planet, Michael Dreeman, Ed Needler, Malcolm Stewart, the career deputies in that office. It's truly a special place and experience, and I don't think there's any other like it. Um, But I feel very lucky um, to be in private practice now and to have succeeded Judge Patty Millette um, in leading the the practice over at Aiken Gump. Um, It gives me a real opportunity to take a leadership role um, and take more of a role in shaping strategy in the cases um, than I had in in the government. Um, And because of that, you have a much greater ownership, I feel, at least I feel I have a much greater ownership over the cases, the group, the cases, uh, for better or worse, both wins and losses. So uh, since you've spent a fair amount of time over at the court, what's your take on the court's transparency? Some groups argue that it's arcane and it needs reforms, but other people say the court is the most transparent branch of government because the justices explain their reasons for reaching a decision and then publish it for all the world to read. So what's your take? Sure. I mean, I, I, I think it is transparent in that sense, right? It. it its reasoning is there for everyone to scrutinize, criticize, um, and, uh, and and make their own judgments. Um, you know, I think the criticisms about its transparency are fair in the sense that, you know, there has been somewhat limited access to certain parts of its institution, oral arguments, transcripts, and all of that. But I think we've been seeing incremental improvements in that. Argument transcripts are now available immediately after the argument. Oral argument recordings are now available much faster. The new website makes pleadings much more accessible. And so I think it's improving, but change at the Supreme Court is slow. So I would not hold your breath for cameras in the courtroom. (laughs) Uh, So I've been to a number of arguments at the court, and I've walked by uh, the Solicitor General's private room um, at the court. I've always wondered what's inside. Can you tell us? Uh, It's a raging party. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, it's um, mostly listening to arguments um, uh, uh, where the office can kind of congregate during arguments and therefore talk and compare notes. Um, rather than be in the courtroom where obviously you can't do any of that. Um, and then the other role it functions is on opinion days after the decisions are decided if the SG's office has a big case. That's often the congregating room for either commiserating over a loss or celebrating a victory. And I guess the one most vivid memory I have um, is after the Affordable Care Act case. Um, and that, of course, um, as everyone remembers, uh, incredibly important uh, case, but also it was a level of scrutiny that I don't think any other case has ever received in terms of the way the SG's office was scrutinized in that case, and in particular Don Varelli. And so I think when that opinion came down in the government's favor, um, there was just a, a really emotional reaction and release in the SG's room where everyone could just kind of share a moment together from the SG's office and celebrate with Don uh, that incredible, incredible win. So. 
what would you say is the most interesting case that you've worked on? Please tell me it's your dormant commerce clause case where you uh, represented Anheuser-Busch. You, you got it. No. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I would I would probably not say that case. Um, I think it's the Defense of Marriage Act case, um, Windsor v. United States. Um, obviously, it was a hugely important civil rights issue. Um, but it was also a case uh, that had a lot of other elements in it, the government changing position and challenging a federal statute, which obviously is very unusual. Um, and it was based on the decision of the president and attorney general. Um, and then, of course, there was a delicate balance with the separate but related gay marriage issue, uh, which was pending in, in the courts at the same time, but still evolving. And so right, trying to strike the right, right balance in making the Defense of Marriage Act issue come first, which is what we thought was the stronger case for the court to maybe lay the groundwork for a further ruling on gay marriage. And I think that strategy has paid off in the long run. And uh, I feel proud to have been part of that effort. So what's the best memory of your time uh, clerking for Justice Breyer? And is he really as clumsy as the media would have us think? They always report him falling off his bike. Uh, it is true. He's fallen off his bike, including when we were clerking with him uh, <laughs> when he was riding in the rain. Uh, but um, but no, he is an incredible boss. A uh, lot of great memories to choose from. Um, but I think I'll keep it brief and let your imagination do it. Think karaoke duet with Justice Ginsburg. That's it. <laughs> oh, wow. So were you surprised when uh, when the news broke that it was his cell phone that went off during oral argument last year? Not a bit. <laughs> uh, so one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, whether living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Uh, justice Jackson. Um, I've... You know, he's he's had obviously everyone knows fascinating career. He was SG, attorney general, Supreme Court justice, lead prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials, all of that. One of the best writers in the court's history, I think. Um, but I've recently become more interested in his work uh, because I just filed yesterday on behalf of the children of Fred Korematsu, Gordon Hirabashi and Minoru Yasui and uh, the three Japanese-Americans uh, who brought the Supreme Court cases uh, during World War II internment, um, filed a brief on their behalf yesterday in the travel ban case. And in working on that brief, I really came um, across Justice Jackson's riveting dissent in the Korematsu decision, uh, which is really uh, telling. Um, and he really warned against the dangers of using um, judicial of judicial validation of discrimination in the name of national security. And he said, and he warned that it could become, quote, like a loaded weapon ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need, end quote. And I think that those are just such prescient words. And I'd love to uh, be able to, to, to hear from him uh, what was going on during that uh, very trying time. Well, Justice Jackson was certainly a powerful writer, and it, it sounds like an interesting brief that you filed, so we'll, we'll definitely have to check it out. But Prateek, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll wrap up with a game, uh, Supreme Trivia, October Anniversary Edition, where I'm going to try to stump Tiffany. <laughs> the questions are all based on things that happened at the court in October. Okay. Let's, uh, are you ready? Let's go. First question. In October 1962, this associate justice joined the court. He's known for his pro-football nickname, Wizard which he hated, and for fighting against substantive due process and other judge-made constitutional law. He also famously dissented in Roe v. Wade and Miranda v. Arizona. Oh, I know this one. It's uh, Byron White. 
That is correct. He was appointed to the court by President Kennedy and served until 1993 when Ruth Bader Ginsburg took his seat. Well done. Next question. In October 1898, this associate justice, who would become the longest-serving member of the court, was born. Um, the longest-serving member is uh, William Douglas. That is correct. William O. Douglas was appointed by FDR, and he served for more than 36 years from 1939 to 1975. He wrote the majority opinion in some very controversial cases, including Griswold versus Connecticut, which was the precursor to Roe v. Wade. Well done. Third question. This October, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of this justice joining the court. I'll give you a hint if you want it. The 50th anniversary? Of when this justice joined oh, the court. Okay. He's not They're still not on He's the not court. still there. Like, that doesn't make sense. Uh, he was succeeded by Clarence Thomas. Oh, uh, Thurgood Marshall. That is correct. Thurgood Marshall, who we talked about earlier. I think that might be why the movie came out this year, because it's the 50th anniversary. Uh, he was the first African-American justice appointed to the court in 1967 by President Lyndon B. Johnson. Third question. Fourth question. In October of this year, the Supreme Court moved to its own building. Oh. I don't know this one. I don't know the You want to take a stab at a decade? Um, I don't want to embarrass myself. I can't remember. I know there's a plaque in the um in the bottom of the Capitol where the Supreme Court used to sit. Um I don't I have no idea when they moved over there. It was 1935. Before then the court as you mentioned had space in the Capitol building. It's kind of a sad little space where they were. Uh, compared yes. to their very palatial building now. It was Chief Justice William Howard Taft, who was also a former president, who persuaded Congress to authorize construction of a permanent home for the court. The project took three years to complete and came in on time and under budget, huh. which I think is pretty impressive for government work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, final question. In October of 2001, the Supreme Court issued an order disbarring this high-profile politician from practicing before the high court. Oh. Think I about the year. 2001? I have no idea. President Bill Clinton. Oh. The court okay. did not explain its reason for the disbarment, but the state of Arkansas had suspended Clinton's law license earlier that year, and the Supreme Court often follows up on, on state disbarments uh, with their own disbarments. So I think you did a pretty good job. You know, the last two were kind of obscure questions, uh, but but well done, Tiffany. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So with that, uh, that's the end of our show. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. 